so this last week, Nicole and I had the opportunity to go to California to participate in what's called Revive This Nation. And this year, we went to Life Point Ministries in Keys, California, which is a suburb of Modesto. Um, the church that we went to is a, about a six-year-old church plant. Usually when we've gone to these things, and my experience from talking to other people who have done Revive This Nation is, these are usually dead or dying churches that we go to. And this is their last-ditch effort to try to revive some life in their church. And the pastors are usually given up at this point. And we're going there to try to encourage them. Um, on the way there this year, it took us 31 hours to drive what should have been a 22-hour drive. We ended up having to stop in Albuquerque and sleep for a few hours because just couldn't do it anymore after all the wind and everything going through the mountains. And... By the time we got there, we were both in a pretty bad attitude. We just, why, why are we doing this, you know? Um, that long of a drive without sleep, sitting on the side of the mountain for a couple of hours in the middle of nowhere, right at the edge of the Death Valley is a, enough to change your spirit to where it shouldn't be at the time. <laughs> um, we got in at about 11.30 at night just to get up at six in the morning for church and for those of you who have never driven to california you go through two time zones that way and doing that on the day of the time change don't ever recommend doing that <laughs> was so confused when we got up in the morning as to what time it was but we went to church and there was not just me and nicole that went there were two other students from southwestern that went uh valmir and stephen and what we were doing is not so much going and preaching like we usually do at Revive This Nation. This was more about going out and sharing the gospel. We were partnering with a group out of Mansfield called Harvest North America. And Harvest North America, their goal is to train churches to evangelize their community. They've been working with this church for several months now. And actually, this is the second time this church has done it, so actually a couple of years. Um, but they've been, they had a list, a big whiteboard they'd made and it had 56 different names on it. And these names were people that their friends and their family, they knew that did not know Christ or had accepted Christ and strayed so far that it wasn't even recognizable they were a Christian. And they had been praying for these people by name for weeks. And then they started setting appointments. So Sunday we go to church and Valmir preaches Sunday morning. And Sunday afternoon, during the evening service, um, me and, or right before the evening service actually, me and Nicole got the chance to go and talk to this guy named Eric. Um, we were invited to his house to share Jesus with him. He knew exactly why we were coming in there, and he was open. So me, her, Stephen, and Jesse, one of the guys from the church, sat down. We all gave our testimonies. And we asked Eric to give us his. And his testimony was that he had been trying to do good. He, he believed in God, and he believed that by doing good, he could um, earn the way to heaven. Besides that, he was confused. He, he didn't know anything else. So we got to share the gospel with him. And Eric accepted Christ. Later, later that day, um, Stephen got to share with Jesse's son. Jesse um, is one of the elders of the church, and he is an evangelist. That man has a passion for sharing the gospel. But one of his sons, a high schooler, had been running from the truth. And Stephen sat down and talked to him, 
And after years and years of hearing the truth, Stephen surrendered and accepted Christ as a Savior that day. Later in the week, we got to share with a couple other people. Nicole, the next day, on Monday, she went with a group to share with a husband and wife why I preached. Um, so she didn't get to hear me preach. <laughs> but <laughs> um, this family, they, they did not accept Christ, but they were open to listening. And the last day that we got to go out and actually share on Tuesday... We went to a couple's home, or actually I went with a, a group and we met at Starbucks, sorry. Nicole stayed, but I went with a group and this was supposed to be a, a guy that we were meeting and they bring him his wife. And as we talked to him and we shared our testimonies, we found out that they were believers. They had both accepted Christ at a, in high school and had tried going to church. They'd both gone to a Catholic church for a while, gone to a Pentecostal church for a while gone to a couple other charismatic type churches and all they could get out of it was they were supposed to do good and they were supposed to you know give to the church and their their thought of church was coming and the plate being passed two or three times and the pastor driving a really expensive car they said they loved jesus but they didn't think that that's what the bible taught and they didn't know what to do about it so they hadn't been going to church was well, we shared what the gospel said and what a true Bible-believing church looks like and what it meant for that relationship. I use the analogy of the marriage. They said they loved each other like, and unconditionally never wanted to split that apart because they believed it's holy. So I told them the Bible says that our relationship with Christ is like that marriage where Jesus is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And they said that made a lot more sense and they rededicated their lives before we left there. And both of them... I got a message while I go. Both of them are in church this morning. So we got to see a lot of great things happen. And this is something I want to talk to Jess about. I believe that it could help not just their church. It could help our church or other churches going out and learning to share the gospel, pray for our family and our friends, and bringing somebody else, whether it's a church member or a friend, to share their testimonies and spread the gospel and to change our community from within. So that's my testimony for this week. Um, today, our scripture reading will be out of 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him for being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me. Sorry. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came out to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to me to sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointing is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance 
or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was a ruddy and, beautiful, and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from, the day, from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Todd. <clears throat> what a joy to hear the Lord working Amen. with people of our church, from our church um, going across state lines and sharing the gospel. What a, what a wonderful truth that is. And I'm, I'm very excited about the opportunities that we may have as a church to reach out to our community here, maybe even through this, through this ministry. Um, one announcement I did forget to, to make, and, and I apologize for this, it is in your bulletin. Uh, we're having a special call business meeting next week. We were not able to make quorum at our last business meeting. We have a couple of things that need to be dealt with uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, those are written in your bulletin. Uh, we, we, are, uh, we have a, a gracious uh, donor who has uh, offered to pay to have our carpet replaced. So uh, we, we need to vote on that and, and make sure we, we have all those uh, uh yeah, all those things settled as a congregation that we make sure those are taken care of. Uh, we also have had some conversation about about uh, about the frequency of our of our business meetings, so we need to take care of those things next week. So what we'll do next week, um, church members stick around afterwards, and we'll have the business meeting right away. And following that, we'll have a we'll have a um, a potluck dinner. So that way, you don't have to worry about missing your food. You don't have to worry about the crock pot. Just just come, bring some food, and we'll, we'll eat together uh, after the business meeting. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. So, that, yeah, so, so make that, put that on your, on your calendar. Next week, right after the service, we'll have the business meeting, take care of the business we need to take care of, and then, uh, and then we'll have a, a potluck dinner, a, a fellowship meal together afterwards. Um, so turn your Bibles to uh, John chapter 12. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 12. Uh, John 12 is going to take us all the way to the end, uh, or uh, up until Easter. Uh, so, so we're going to be, so we, we get to stop and look at the roses and, and take our time through this passage. I'm excited about the opportunity to look through what the text has for us uh, here. Um, so uh, anyway, I'm excited about that. So John chapter 12, let's go ahead and um, we'll read this passage together and then we'll begin walking through it. Uh, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he, was, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to come to your word. Lord, to come ready to worship. Uh, Lord, worship is not just time that's taken during singing, but also as we learn from your word. Lord, I pray we would worship you here. Lord, I pray we would learn about worship as we look at how Mary worships Jesus here. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would just uh, be with us as a congregation. Help us to learn much from you. Uh, challenge us uh, from your word. In your name, amen. <clears throat> a few things we want to recognize as we come to this text, as we come to these 11 verses, there's, there's uh, several interesting things about what this particular passage, these short 11 verses, what they do in the whole narrative of John. Remember we saw last week, we've been seeing how, how John is separated into two major sections. You have chapters 1 through 10. That, uh, that show that are, that are the public ministry of Jesus. Then you have chapters 11 through, uh, through 21. And we saw how in 1 through 10, you have this book ending of, of, uh, of, of John the Baptist's ministry at the, at, in chapter 1 and John the Baptist's ministry in chapter 10. And here uh, we'll, we, saw, we saw last week about resurrection. We saw how resurrection is brought up in chapter 11. And then Jesus at the end of the gospel raises from the dead. Right, so we have these, there's this very important, uh, John is very meticulous about, about the way he's presenting the material. Right? He's, he's very purposeful in the way he's presenting the material to us. We saw at the end of last week that, that, that there is a group of Jews, the chief priests and the Pharisees, this group of authorities that are ready and they're making plans and they're now in full works making plans to kill Jesus. At this point in our timeline, we're about a week away from the crucifixion. Uh, the rest of the Gospel of John is all focused on that, the, those, those, that one week taking place right here, um, which is, is pretty fascinating in and of itself. But you have the, Ju the Jewish authorities are now making plans to kill Jesus. And because they're worried that people are going to worship him, that people are going to treat him as the, as the Savior, that people are going to think of him as the Messiah, people are going to start believing that he's the Son of God. And what takes place right after that? Mary worships Jesus. The very thing that the Jewish authorities were trying to stop, Mary completely foils their plans and worships Jesus. Furthermore, we see, we see another contrast that takes place uh, within even these couple of chapters. Mary here is, is, is worshiping Jesus in this way, this, this remarkable and, and, and beautiful way uh, by, by anointing Jesus' feet. And yet, the disciples in the very next chapter have to be taught by Jesus how to serve this way. Right, we have a woman who is able to serve Jesus better than these 12 guys. 
We can't, we can't make any case that the Bible is sexist. I'm sorry. That's not possible. Right? Uh, it's just this beautiful reminder here. Furthermore, this event, this Mary's worship of Jesus here, casts a long shadow over the rest of the book. Jesus says that this, this anointing that takes place is in preparation for his burial. So this, this event here, what Mary does here is a preparation for basically the rest of the gospel. There's a, this is a major mark in, in, in the gospel narrative here. So we see all these things. There's, there's a lot going on in just these 11 verses. They're so integral to the task of what John is doing in presenting this gospel. Another couple of things I want to point out just, just, to, just to help us as we, as we place this text uh, within the entirety of Scripture. Um, other of the, the, the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talk about other events of anointing. Um, there's, there's, there's a couple of them... Uh, what really is going on, what some people try to do is say that, that all those different anointing activities that take place, all those different times that Jesus is anointed, those are all uh, confused stories talking about one story that stands behind it. And that's not true. In fact, the better way to read this is to see these as separate events, as, as some of them as separate events. Now, again, um, because then, then it all makes sense. In fact, so uh, there's some similarities in, in John. So I think it's in, in Matthew and in Mark. Uh, I'm not 100% sure. I didn't, I didn't put, write this down. This is, this is freebies. This is, we're not in my notes. Um, uh, but I, I had looked, at, looked into this earlier. Um, there's, there's some similarities, enough where there's, there's, this is probably an event that, that is recorded in some of the other Gospels as well. Uh, so, uh, I think, uh, one of the other Gospels mentions that, that uh, this, this jar was broken open, this, and John doesn't mention a jar. That doesn't mean there wasn't a jar here, though, right? There's, it's very possible that there was a jar, and that it's taking place in that particular event in the other Gospels that mentions it, it took place at Bethany. Very possible, right? This is taking place at Bethany. That one takes place at Bethany. They're probably talking about the same thing. In the other gospel, it says that, that this person who broke open the jar, it doesn't name them by name in that, in that gospel. But it also says that they anointed over his head. But John says it was their feet. Well, can it be both? Right? Isn't it possible to anoint someone on their head and their feet at the same time? And for one to focus on one aspect, one to focus on another aspect? Right, so we don't have to. We don't have to say all oh, these these things. They don't agree with each other, and the gospels don't don't really make sense. We can actually make sense out of it. We can understand what's going on, and and, and where, where there are major points of disagreement, there's there's probably another time that happened, right? Um, so so we can make sense. The God, we don't have to. We don't have to uh, buy into some of these false ideas about the gospels. Anyway, moving forward, coming into the text, we're going to see. Um, Three aspects of, of, of our lives. We're going to see three main points here. We're going to see that we must lavishly and sacrificially worship our Savior King. We're going to see that uh, we must not separate worship and service. And third, we're going to see that we must remember the real target of persecution as we walk through this passage here. So let's start in the very beginning of this passage in verses one through three, and then kind of picked up again in verse seven. We see that we must lavishly and sacrificially worship our Savior King. This is kind of the focus of this entire passage. Is those first three, this first couple of verses, especially verse three, and then Jesus' response in verse seven, kind of are the main focus. So it's going to take a little bit longer to work through this. Let's 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 walk through this then. What, what's going on in this passage? First, it starts out it says six days before Passover. 
Here we're in the final days of Jesus' earthly life. Chronologically, uh, a scholar named Andreas Kostenberger suggests that in 33 AD, Passover would have occurred on Thursday, April 2nd. And since the ancient Jews would have considered a day to start in the evening, he places Jesus' arrival at Bethany on Friday, March 27th, followed by the dinner that evening on Saturday, March 28th. If, if Jesus arrived Friday evening, the dinner would, not have, would have taken place then on Saturday. Uh, um, more important than chronology, however, John gives us insight into a theological understanding of Jesus' crucifixion. If you remember back to John chapter 7, we saw how in the feast calendar, God reveals his redemptive timetable. All the way back in Leviticus, he's explaining the process of redemption that's going to take place. Passover which is the very first feast of their year, uh, is, is, is fulfilled in Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus is the Passover lamb by which salvation is brought to the nations. By reminding us of the nearness of Passover, John is reminding us of the Passover's theological significance in the calendar of redemption. He says that it, it was six days before the Passover and Jesus came to Bethany. Bethany was situated about two miles away from Jerusalem. This would be about a one-hour walk, one or maybe maybe two-hour walk if, if if you're walking really slowly, right? So this is a, a, a two miles away. It's it, Jesus uh, very likely often came to Bethany when he traveled to Jerusalem. It was not a very far far distance away at all. Then we start getting introduced to some of these characters that are taking that are here. So uh, they gave a dinner for him. Jesus was here. The key came to Bethany, sorry, where Lazarus was. If you remember, this is, again, this ties chapter 12 back to chapter 11 as well, uh, bringing up Lazarus. Remember last week we saw Lazarus raised from the dead. This is the same city there. This is where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. I would do the same thing, wouldn't you? You just raised my brother from the dead. You're coming to town. I'm going to make you some food, Right? We're going to celebrate this. We're glad you're here. I mean, not only is he their friend, not only is he a friend to some of these people in Bethany, not only is he really, is he a well-known public figure at this time, but at the same time, he performed a miracle that the city would be, would still be talking about, right? This would have driven the city mad with, they would have been like, this is so exciting. Jesus, this guy who raised somebody from the dead, he's here again. Let's celebrate, right? So they have a dinner with him here. And we get introduced to some of these characters. It says, says that uh, uh, Martha served, right? Martha was, Martha was likely preparing and serving the meal. Remember the same person who last week wasn't quite sure how Jesus was going to be able to take care of things. And almost, she almost doubted what Jesus could do, not sure that he could raise Lazarus from the dead right there, right then and right there. And here she is serving the meal. She's here taking part in, in, this, in, this, in, this, uh, in this meal that's going on. We also see that Lazarus is there. Lazarus is alive! Right? He's here and he's alive! He's sitting reclined at the table. This is indicated. This is how they would have, how they would have eaten at a table. They would, tables would have been low and they would have leaned down and been reclining. Their legs would have been out. So this is kind of, if you're drawing a picture in your mind of what this looked like, don't think of your Thanksgiving meal table. Right? This is not everyone sitting neatly at a, at a table. This is, this is people laying, in, laying across and leaning up to a table, eating with their hands, very likely. Right? So this, this is drawing that picture in your mind. Lazarus is at the table with them. That alone could cause us to worship, and that alone, could, we, we could stop right there in that very moment and just, and, just, and just glory in that. However, the text doesn't stop there. 
It says, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. So a couple of things we need to pick apart to understand the picture of what's going on here. It says, uh, uh, it says that Mary, Mary presented, it was a pound, right? This is not our our pound, this would have been what a Roman pound would have been. If you have a footnote in your Bible, it may say there's something about equivalent to our about 11 and a half ounces. Um, so, so this is about 11 and a half ounces of, of perfume. If anybody who has perfume knows that that's quite a bit of perfume, right? You don't use a whole lot when you, when you put on, I know when I put on my cologne, you know, it's just a couple of sprays. It's not a whole lot, right? I don't use cologne that often, so it's a joke, sorry. Um, it says it's expensive ointment also. It tells us it's expensive ointment. Um, it took a pound of expensive ointment. Um, verse 5 tells us that it was worth about 300 denarii. <clears throat> the average laborer would have received one denarius for one day of labor. That was one whole day's worth of work would receive one denarius. Therefore, if you take out Sabbaths and holidays, the amount of a full year, this would be the amount of a full year's wage. If you were to put that in dollars and cents in the United States, in the United States of America today, we're probably looking at about thirty to forty thousand dollars worth of worth of perfume. Thirty to forty thousand dollars poured out on Jesus' feet. Spikenard oil came from a certain flower that was only found in India. Therefore, this fine perfume had to be imported from a great distance. And remember, they didn't have UPS, right? They couldn't just say, hey, get that delivered to me, you know, order it on Amazon and get it delivered to me in a couple of days. No, this would have been a long, very expensive importation process um, for something that was already a very fine element. Even today, spikenard, uh, especially that amount, is not cheap. I actually found some on Amazon for, for a very little bit. It was, a, it was a, a little vial of about 0.33 ounces. It wasn't really that cheap. It was about $15 for, about, for 0.33 ounces. I went ahead and ordered it because next week, you guys are going to get to smell what spikenard smells like, right? What spikenard oil smells like. So you, could have a, you can get a little bit more into the picture of what's going on here. It was for you. I wanted you guys to be able to smell it. It was especially for Wayne. No, I'm not going to wear it. <laughs> no, I'm going to save you all that trouble. It'll be available for you to smell. It'll be in my office then after that if you really want to come and smell it again. Huh? I wasn't planning on it. I was planning on keeping it in my office as a reminder. We could do that. Maybe we'll do that. Maybe, maybe we'll pour it out on Sue's hands. Let her have it. <laughs> she's, she's not letting me do that. All right. Anyway, moving on. Um, so even if we were to order that today, if we were to order 11 and a half ounces worth of it, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $500, right? Now, again, that's still really expensive, right? There's definitely a little bit of a value difference in the, between the day and age. But again, that'd be $500, Imagine getting something that's five hundred dollars, just being like, "Here you go," and then just pour it on the floor. Right? We would, we would. That would be crazy for us to think of that. But this is what Mary does. Says so she. It also says that she anointed on his feet. This is an image of her self-perceived unworthiness. One of the lowest jobs for a servant was to wash the feet of the guests, and then not only that, but she washes his feet with her hair. Ladies. <laughs> 
Would you, that, does that make any, would, think of the craziness, even in our culture of that. My wife hates feet. She hates them, right? If I put my foot anywhere near her, she's gonna smack me, okay? She would not ever wash my feet with her hair. Never, let alone touch them with her finger, right? And here Mary takes her hair. Now even more so culturally, this was so, so important. It would have been very indecent for a woman to let down her hair, to untie her hair in front of, in front of a, a house of guests. Yet Mary doesn't feel any shame about this. She's unashamed. She comes before Jesus, pours out this expensive oil, and uses her hair to wipe it off. What a phenomenal sacrifice. Don't let the force of that drive or, or walk past you. Don't let the force of that go beyond. It would have been indecent for a reputable woman to let down her hair in public, yet Mary does not let that stop her from lavishing worship on her Savior. Letting down her hair then represented her extreme gratitude and humility before Jesus. Now what she does, as we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 16, anointing someone in this kind of a way would have been more, would have normally symbolized the anointing of royalty, especially the beginning of their rule. As we saw in scripture, um, in the scripture reading, Samuel anointed David to set him apart as king. Here, the greater David, Jesus, is anointed as king. However, as Jesus will point out, this anointing does not display the beginning of his reign, but the preparation, but his preparation for burial. She recognized Jesus as a compassionate king who raised her brother from the dead, yet she also understands him to be a sacrificial savior who would soon give up his life for her. Now in verse 7, if you go forward there, uh, after being rebuked by Judas, Jesus defends her actions. Jesus' words are best understood to carry this meaning of uh, leave her alone. She's, she's done this in order to keep it for the day of my burial. We will see the nature of Judas' remarks in a second, but at this juncture, it's important to reemphasize why Mary acted as she did. Her choice to honor Jesus in this way was a preparation for Jesus' burial. Jesus, by interpreting Mary's actions, demonstrates what kind of royal office he is beginning. Mary had acted as a slave to anoint her king, but it will ultimately be Jesus who must serve the children of God by pouring out his entire inheritance given to him by the Father. So we see in this section, we must lavishly and sacrificially worship our Savior King. Too often we see worship as purely an emotional response. We believe that we worshiped if we raise our hands in the service. We believe that we worship if we cried or if we enjoyed the music. However, as we see here, worship is not determined by emotions, but by action. Every decision we make is an act of worship. More important, the, the more important question to ask is, what is the object of your worship? Choosing a quality banana to feed your family instead of a rotten banana is an act of worship. If done with the intentions to bring glory to God through it. Choosing to spend time with your children instead of putting in more work hours at home is an act of worship. On the other side, choosing to work instead of communicating with your spouse or spending time with your children is an act of worship, a worship of self, money, 
And ultimately, as Ephesians 2 tells us, an act of worshiping the enemy. Not only is the act and object of worship more important than emotions, but worship also costs something. We see that Mary expended an entire fortune on Jesus. Now, my goal is not to say that money equals worship, right? Uh, that, that's not my goal. But what we do with our time and our finances will tell us about our priorities and what we worship. If we spend hours a day watching television instead of spending time in prayer and being in the word, what does that say about your worship? If we spend thousands of dollars on a boat or some other luxury, but we can't find a way to tithe, what does that say about our worship? If we carve out time to watch hours of March Madness or to spend time with friends, but we cannot find time to serve children or come to Bible study on Wednesday nights or even come to church on a regular basis on Sundays, what does that say about who and what we worship? Coming to church most weeks would be fairly inconvenient for many. So, we, so then we decide that we only arrive when we have spare time. You know, when I can make it, when it's, when it's convenient for me, I'll, I'll come. But the gathering of the church, friends, is commanded by God. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, Scripture tells us. The church was God's idea, not man's idea. For us to claim that we just don't have to have time to come to worship together with the body of Christ is to tell God that he got the idea of the church wrong. Or maybe you think you don't need to serve anymore because you did your time. You're just too tired. If you have real health concerns, now I can understand that. But the Bible does not put a retirement age on serving in the church. We as a church, I'm telling you, we need you. Not just want you, we need you. Too many churches function with 10 to 20% of the church doing 80 or 90% of the work. In our church, that would be 5 to 10 people doing everything. We cannot function with those kind of statistics. We will burn those people out if we maintain that mentality. Don't ask yourself whether or not you should serve, but if you're a member, you should ask, how can I serve? Serving is part of worship, and worship is costly. Secondly, we see here that we must not separate worship and service. Look at how Judas responds in this passage, uh, beginning in verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Then he continues on. He says, uh, he says, uh, um, uh, yeah, he, so he, he asks that question. Um, and, then, and then John gives us some commentary on this. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in, into it. Looking at this, Jesus, Judas displays, uh, 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 D.A. Carson explains it this way. Judas displays a certain utilitarianism that pit, pits pragmatic compassion, or in this case, concern for the poor, against extravagant, unqualified devotion. 
If self-righteous piety sometimes snuffs out genuine compassion, it must also be admitted with shame that social activism, even that which, which meets real needs, sometimes makes a spirit that knows nothing of worship and adoration. What Judas does here is he separates worship from service. He says what she did here is not nearly as important as what we could have done in serving the poor. She put all that expensive ointment on Jesus' feet. How could she do that when that money could have been used to serve the poor? He separates those two in this, in this kind of self-centered, very arrogant way. And as we find out in the next verse, it was for the purpose of lining his own pockets. He was not really concerned about the poor. He, just, he was kind of like the hired hand in, in John chapter 10, verse 13, who cares nothing for the sheep. At the same time, this, this, so this also shows us that you can be active, you can serve and not have right motives and therefore that worship, that serving cannot be worship either. We can't separate worship and service like this. It says in verse 6 that he was in charge of the money bag. The word itself is the word for a box typically used as a coffer. Thus, it's likely this wasn't even a bag at all. It was, probably, it was probably a box. It's translated as money bag, but very likely this is probably a box um, uh, that, that he used. And he says he used to help himself to, uh, to what was in it, what was put into it. The grammar actually carries the idea of a continuation. So he regularly took money for himself. In fact, the very truth of this matter may be that as the money was coming in the box, he was scooping it out and putting it right into his pocket. That's what it seems that the grammar may be indicating. We saw again at verse 7, Judas is told by Jesus to leave her alone. She was, she was right to worship Jesus in this way. He was wrong to question the value and quality of her sacrifice. And then verse 8, it says, uh, Jesus says, for, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now we need to be careful here. Jesus is not saying that the poor are, un, are not valuable. He's not saying that at all. We have seen his compassion over and over through his ministry. Rather, Jesus is reminding Judas that the sole object of devotion and worship is always himself. The sole object of all of our worship and service always must be directed to Jesus and him alone. One scholar said, ultimately, Christian devotion to the poor, as necessary as it is, is a subset of Christian devotion to Christ the King who commands his people to serve others. We give to the poor because we are in need. We give to Jesus because we are in need. It is only by means of the latter, by us giving to, giving to Jesus, that we can rightly see ourselves as slaves of Christ and not as fellow royalty. So we see in this that we must not separate worship and service. As we already saw, serving is part of worship. The two go hand in hand. Judas tried to separate the two by suggesting that her act of worship was unwise. However, the truth that we saw in worshiping, uh, we saw is that worshiping Jesus is far more valuable even than giving to the poor. We also saw that Jesus did not devalue the poor, but rather emphasized the true object of serving. So in other words, when you help out in VBS... During, or, or help during Wednesday night. It's not a hindrance or a distraction from our worship, but rather it is worship. 
taking part of the work of the kingdom of God taking place every week is worship. Better than raising hands or having an emotional reaction and leaving it there, serving is so closely tied to our worship. Every nose you wipe in the nursery, every meal you serve to children, every plate of cookies you take to the community should be seen as an act of worship. The object of all worship ought to be Jesus Christ. Those things are only worship if we remember and keep in mind that that service is directed toward Christ ultimately. What a reform that worship takes, it's not ultimately, it is ultimately an act of devotion and submission. To, uh, if it is, sorry, whatever, whatever uh, uh, form that type of worship takes, uh, it is not ultimately an act of devotion and submission to Jesus. If it, if it is not, sorry, I'm having trouble reading my own notes. If, if we do those things, if we serve in these ways, but then, but our, our ultimate reason is not focus on Jesus. Does that make sense? Am I there now? Okay. I'm <laughs> figuring that one out. So uh, if, if what we do, how we serve in our church, if our, if our goal and our focus is not on Jesus, then it is no longer worship of Jesus. It is idolatry. Judas here was acting in idolatry. He wanted to serve, but it was for his own selfish gain. We can't separate these two ideas. We must worship like Mary worshiped, lavishly pouring on Jesus. And we must worship through service. Martha was worshiping as well in serving Jesus and serving tables. Last, we see that we must remember the real target of persecution. We'll do this real quickly. Um, now we see the chief, uh, we see, look at verse 9. It says, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now we see the chief priests add Lazarus to their list of targets. Last week we saw they, they made plans to kill Jesus. And here now they add Lazarus to that list. Killing Jesus will not be enough. If Lazarus lives, he will remain as a testimony for people to follow Jesus. The voice of Lazarus' testimony must be silenced. Now clearly, as we saw last week, this is very faulty thinking on their part. Do they really think that Jesus cannot raise Lazarus again from the dead? Like maybe, well, if we kill him, that's different than him dying and being sick. So if we kill him, he can't raise him from the dead. What, how silly can you be? Like we got killed Lazarus. Was Jesus just going to not raise him from the dead again? I mean, are you really trying to say that? Well, he can't do that if, I, if we kill him. It's just ridiculous. In targeting Lazarus, though, what ultimately what we see in the text here is instead, when they targeted Lazarus, really, they were targeting Jesus. Now, because of Lazarus' testimony on a positive side, because of Lazarus' testimony, many people believed in Jesus. Notice that Lazarus cannot receive the glory. Right? Look at this. It says, this is because on account of him, many of the Jews, uh, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. They didn't come away and say, I believe in Lazarus. Yeah, that Lazarus, I really, I really believe him. 
No, they go away, they see Lazarus, they see his testimony, and they believe in Jesus. His testimony, like any truly Christian testimony, will only reflect glory to Jesus Christ. Like Lazarus, I don't want anyone to walk away from my sermons thinking, wow, Justin's a great preacher. Not that you would, because I know how I preach and it's not going to happen. Um, but instead, my desire is for my sermons to be so saturated in Scripture, so saturated in Jesus, that everyone walks away saying, wow, Jesus is amazing. That should be our response. If you go away saying, man, G Justin is a great guy, that's awesome. The glory is focused all wrong. It's all twisted. I'm probably doing something wrong then. My goal as a preacher is to see you worship Jesus because of my preaching. And the same when you share the gospel with others. Do people see Jesus or do they see you? We must remember, though, in looking at this passage, we must remember that the real target of persecution is not us, but is Jesus. We often run from persecution. We hide from it. We believe that if we face hard times, we must be doing something wrong. Rather, we must remember that when we are attacked for our faith in Christ, it is not us that are being attacked. Jesus is being attacked. First Peter promises that true believers will face persecution or attacks for their faith. First Peter encourages us to, instead of being taken down by persecution, to rest firmly in our identity in Christ. When your boss tries to make fun of you for going to church, they're not really making fun of you. They're attacking the commands of Christ. When a nation seeks to convince believers that they are ignorant for believing in outdated dogma, they're not really attacking your faith. They're attacking the Savior who died for them. Too often we get defeated facing persecution Although the face, persecution we face is minimal compared to our brothers and sisters spread throughout the continents. But we, as well as they, can face persecution and suffer through the persecution rather than avoid it. Because our identity is firmly grounded in Jesus Christ and he is the real object of their hatred. Rather than hate them in return, we can love them and share the gospel with them. We see here these people want to kill Lazarus, someone who's got a powerful testimony for Jesus. Their real intention is not because Lazarus is doing something wrong or because they don't like Lazarus. It's because Lazarus is distracting from their own pride, from their own arrogance, from their own authority. We must remember that the real target of our perse of persecution is not us, but it's Jesus. So we've seen a couple of things here. We've seen uh, several, several aspects of worship. We've seen that, that worship is costly. That Mary lavishly worships her Savior King. Jesus deserves our worship because he is King of Kings and he is Lord of Lords. But not only that, not only does he stand as king, but this king who deserves our worship, who is the son of God and therefore rightly deserves our worship, took on humanity so that he may die for our sin. Amen. He's not just a king. He is also a savior. He dies for your sin and for mine. That also deserves our worship, lavish worship. What do you worship?
How do you spend your time? Do you worship yourself? Do you worship money? Do you worship praise of men? Or do you worship your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? How do you use your money? Do you worship luxury? Do you worship good food? That's mine, right? (laughs) It's not really that funny. I like spending money on good food. But how I use my money shows where I worship, does it not? How you use, use your money shows exactly who and what you worship. The object of our worship, as we see here, is always and only Jesus Christ. How will you worship him with what he has given you? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity we have to come to your church. Lord, to be challenged by your word. Lord, to be reminded of the true object of our worship. Lord, to be reminded that worship hurts. Worship can worship can means worship means sacrifice. Worship isn't isn't just emotional responses, but it is sacrifice. Sacrificing our time to gather together with one another. Sacrificing our time to pray for one another. Sacrificing our time and our money to take care of our families well, to, to make sure they're eating healthy, to make sure that they're being taken care of. Lord, it's sacrificing our, our time and our money to, to serve for your kingdom. To um to to to, to make sure that, that, that the kingdom work that is going on can continue forward. Lord, I pray that our worship and our service would be so uniquely and, and carefully tied together so that when we serve and when we worship, those, those things do not contrast one another, but rather, Lord, come together and be, be one act of worship. I pray that you would uh, help us respond as you would have us respond. In your name, amen.